Jonah 2, verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word of the Lord. Now let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we now come to your word, to think upon it, to consider it, we trust what your word says, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So help us now, O Lord, to hear and take in your words this morning. Father, please continue your work of transformation within us. We ask this for the sake of Christ Jesus and for his glory. Amen. For the past 18 years of uh, regular uh, weekly preaching every Lord's Day, one response that I've heard while I greet people at the door uh, following the service is, thank you, Pastor. That was a good reminder. That was a good reminder. Maybe you have said that to me a time or two after the service. Uh, if you have, you're not, not the only one. Um, at my former church in Iowa, there was one particular brother that uh, said that to me quite often uh, after the services. In fact, I came to expect it whenever uh, I would see him come up to me after the service, uh, he'd shake my hand, he'd smile at me, and he'd say, thank you, Pastor, that was a good reminder. Early on, I wouldn't really think much of it, just a nice thing to say, but uh, it finally struck me that one of the most important things a preacher does for his congregation is to remind them each week of the most significant truths that they need to live on day by day. Most of the time, I'm not saying anything new to you in my sermons. I'm just reminding you of what the Bible says. I'm reminding you there is a God. He has spoken. We've all fallen away from him in our sin and our unbelief, but, but you belong to him, and he has not cast you off but has accomplished your salvation for you. Therefore, you owe everything to him. And he has everything under control. So turn your hearts back to him. Listen to him. Obey him. Honor him. Follow him. That church... My member Beck and I would need to be reminded of those truths each week to help him to continue to orient his life around God while he uh, provided for his family, uh, working at a manufacturing plant. Um, others needed to be reminded of those things so that uh, they would be sure to trust that Christ is their life while they face their, their daily challenges, whatever those might be. And if all I'm doing for you is, is providing you with a good reminder of the reality of God and his salvation each week, then I know that that is a good and needed work. 
We all need reminders because we so easily forget, especially when trouble and suffering sneak up on us. And I consider one main aspect of of my work is to prepare you for those moments when trouble and suffering sneak up on you. To preach God's word, to remind you of his greatness, of his glory, of his promises, so that your lives will be so oriented around the reality of God that when you wake up one morning and find yourself in the middle of the valley of the shadow of death, you will not fall into despair but you will respond with faith. So as we come to Jonah chapter 2, verses 7 through 10, Jonah is in the middle of an incredible time of of suffering, of trial, um, a time when he says his life was fainting away. And so we would be wise to orient our lives around the Lord. That's what this passage is really getting at for us. We would be wise to orient our lives around the Lord. That's our main theme from these verses this morning. So here is Jonah in the belly of this great fish. And uh, this is a prayer of thanksgiving. It's a prayer recognizing the incredible mercy of God that, that, that he showed to Jonah in rescuing him from drowning in the ocean, even though Jonah had refused to glorify God by honoring his word, and he had disobeyed the Lord's command to go to Nineveh. Jonah went as far as he could go in the opposite direction, but as it turned out, he didn't get very far. His running away led to disaster for himself and those that he was with as the Lord sent a storm to the sea to prevent Jonah from having his own way. Jonah attempted to disorient his life away from the Lord. That's what he was trying to do. He sought to pursue a life from uh, a, a life away from a life apart from the Lord, apart from his word, apart from his influence over him, but that quickly led to disaster. And then by way of a storm and a great fish, the Lord graciously sought to help Jonah reorient his life back in place, having the Lord and his word at the very center of his life. And so we would be wise to learn from Jonah's example. That when we try to to disorient our lives away from the Lord leads to disaster, rather let's Let's reorient our lives, let's orient our lives completely around the Lord. So our text this morning is made up of uh, the final three verses of Jonah's prayer in chapter 2, and then the concluding statement of Jonah's deliverance in verse 10, which is a fitting follow-up to what we see in verse 9. So we'll make our way through the passage this morning, taking each each verse at a time, while uh, combining our last uh, point with verses 9 and 10 since they go together. So, first of all, verse 7, remember the Lord. And then verse 8, forsake your idols. And then verse 9 and 10, the Lord rules over salvation. Remember the Lord, forsake your idols, and the Lord rules over salvation. So first, verse 7, remember the Lord. So chapter 2 is the result of what Jonah describes for us in verse 7. Verse 7 says, when my life was fainting away... I remembered the Lord. 
and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. What we have here in verses 2 through 9 of chapter 2 is the prayer that Jonah prayed while in the belly of the fish that he was saved in uh, by the Lord. Jonah tells us here in verse 7 that this wasn't the first prayer he had made to the Lord while he was in the sea. For he first prayed to the Lord, as he says, when my life was fainting away. That is, when he had reached his lowest point, when he believed that all was lost, when he was deep in the sea, drowning with seaweed wrapped around his head, as he says there earlier in the chapter. His life was was fainting away. Or it could also be translated as, as ebbing away, fading away, slipping away. Like Jonah was just off of a, a high cliff hanging for his dear life to a rope and he was realizing that he just didn't have the strength to continue to hold on and his hands were beginning to slip down that rope. It was slipping away. He was in the most desperate of situations and that is when he remembered the Lord. It sometimes takes very critical situations to get us to remember the Lord. What's interesting about Jonah's story is that while he was still on the boat, the pagan sailors were all calling out to their different gods because they knew that they were in a desperate life or death situation at that time. They, they were the ones to even challenge Jonah to call out to his God. For maybe they said, maybe, maybe your God will take notice of us and be able to help us. But Jonah doesn't pray on the boat. Jonah had not yet reached that point of humility when he realized the deep trouble he was in. He had not yet reached his lowest point. Sometimes it takes a lot for us to get to that point. Some of us have just a little harder head than others. We're just a bit more stubborn. It seems Jonah may have been in that category. For it wasn't until he felt that his life was about to fade away, drowning in the ocean, that he finally, he says, remembered the Lord when my life was fainting away. Now, in the Old Testament, re- remembering often means more than just simply you know, recalling something to mind that you had momentarily forgotten about. Remembering in the Old Testament has to do with God. It has to do with, with God his great works of deliverance and his covenant faithfulness or his covenant promises to his people. This is what Jonah remembers here. When Jonah remembered the Lord here as his life was was slipping away, he called to mind God's mighty power to save. He, He remembered God's promises to his people that he would bless them and that he would be their God and that they would be his people. He realized the Lord's glorious description of himself, that he is a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And so he cried out to the Lord in prayer. And it says, even though he was at death's door, even though he was at the bottom of the sea, it says, my prayer came to you into your holy temple. So brothers and sisters, the Lord is always ready to hear our prayers for mercy. When we are at a low point, 
or we feel like no one can help. When we feel like we're all alone in our grief or in our desperation. God's word is reminding us here that our prayers for help rise up in a sense. They, 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 they jump up to the front of the line before God's throne and he hears us. As King David says in Psalm 31, 22, Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me. When I was, was in a besieged city, I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. In the darkest and most, most despairing of times when it almost seems like it's too late, Jonah remembered the Lord. He cried out to him for mercy, and his prayer rose up out of the deep sea, came before the Lord's throne, and the Lord remembered him and saved him. Again, verse 17 of chapter 1, And the Lord appointed a great fish, to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. But brothers and sisters, let us not be like Jonah in this way. Let's not wait until it's almost too late for us to call out to the Lord for help before we remember him. One of the reasons the Lord has you here this morning, why he has you hearing God's word regularly is so that you will prepare yourselves for that time of desperation long before you have to face it. As I said before, one of my main jobs is to remind you of what you need to know so that you can orient your lives around the Lord. And do that now instead of finding yourself completely unprepared for when trouble comes. The goal is for you to be so full of God's word, to have your life so firmly built upon the rock of the Lord Jesus Christ and the foundation of his word, that when you encounter trouble, when you, when you get that dreaded phone call, when you're in the doctor's office and he confirms the diagnosis that you were fearing, or when another storm blows through and, and, and brings great damage and distress upon your life, and, 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 and your property, your feet won't slip in those moments. But we firmly grounded on the sound of foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ and of all of his promises. So you know, one of the most encouraging parts of my experience as a pastor, it's been when I talk with a member of the church who is in the midst of a crisis and, and they honestly tell me about that trouble that they're dealing with. And I'm fully aware um, of what's going on in, in, their, in their lives, and it's, it's, it's bad, it's, 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 it's troubling, it's hard, and I'm feeling for them, and then they say something like, but the Lord is with us, the Lord is with us. How do they know? They definitely don't know that by their circumstances. It isn't because of just, just how they're feeling at the time, because they're feeling awful. How do they know the Lord is with them? How can they be sure? 
believers are certain that the Lord is with them in the midst of their troubles only because he has promised it in his word. And they believe. They trust him. They know his word. They know his promises. And they have prepared themselves beforehand. So, brothers and sisters, be prepared. Remember the Lord. Number two, verse eight, forsake your idols. Forsake your idols. Jonah now makes a contrast between his remembering of the Lord and praying to him for salvation and those who pay regard to vain, as he says, or worthless idols. Look at verse eight. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. So why does Jonah use a verse out of his prayer here to God to address idol worship? Who is he referring to here? Why was he saying this in this prayer? Well, let's recall that, that Jonah was a prophet of Israel. He was a prophet of Israel uh, of the northern kingdom during the reign of Jeroboam II, the second Jeroboam that reigned over Israel. So therefore, Jonah was primarily God's messenger to the people of Israel, and he would have been writing this or relaying this message primarily to his fellow Israelites. This is for them. And what was the northern kingdom's primary problem in those years that he was ministering there? It was idolatry. The northern kingdom was steeped in idolatry from its very inception. The first king, Jeroboam, he made two golden calves, and he placed them in the cities of, of Dan and Bethel, one in the north and one in the south of the, of the country. And he commanded his people to worship the Lord there at these golden calves rather than go all the way to Jerusalem and worship the Lord there in the temple. And the people followed their king's instructions for the most part. This, this was always known throughout the book of of uh, kings as the sin of Jeroboam, the sin of Jeroboam, making these two golden calves and leading the people to worship them. Jonah was addressing this word of truth in verse 8 to his own people. This is a word of warning to the people of God. They were in danger of forsaking their hope of steadfast love. In 2 Kings 17, uh, just a, a few generations after Jonah's ministry um, as a prophet in, in Israel, God finally sent the nation of Assyria to overtake the tribes of the northern kingdom and carry them off into exile as judgment for their idolatry and their idols of Baal that they're worshiping, uh, of uh, Ashtaroth, uh, their, their, their golden calves. They were useless in saving them from the destruction that came upon them from their enemies to the northeast. So 2 Kings 17 provides a summary of this for us. And I just want you to listen to what's told here about Jonah's people. This is just verse, verse 15 of 2 Kings 17. Here are the people that Jonah is addressing with verse 8. It says, They despised the Lord's statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers, and the warnings that he gave them, they went after false idols and became false. And they followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. Why would Israel turn away from the Lord 
to worship idols. One reason, simply convenience. You know, God commanded them to worship him at the temple in Jerusalem. Well, they thought, that's so far away. You know, why not just put up a couple of alternative worship sites closer to home where we can worship him here in our own land? You know, wouldn't that be easier to do, just out of convenience? So that's what they did. Another reason, of course, was, was compromise. Compromise with their neighbors, with, with their, 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 their pagan neighbors around them. You know, their pagan neighbors weren't worshiping the Lord. They didn't know the Lord. They had other gods. Wouldn't it be nice and neighborly to learn more about these other gods, these other ways of worship? I mean, what could be the harm in that? Who's to say that, that, that we know all there is to know about God? I mean, isn't that arrogant of us to assume that the Lord's way is the only way to live? Maybe we can learn something from, from their perspective. Maybe we can get into what they're doing a little bit more. Compromise. But maybe the main reasons why Israel turned to idol worship were for pleasure and profit. Pleasure and profit. The surrounding nations would offer sacrifices to their idols in order for their gods, as it were, to send rain on the land so that their crops would bear fruit and that their livestock would be fertile. Their motivation for worship was profit. They wanted their fields to produce great harvests and their sheep and goats to produce many more sheep and goats. They also looked to their gods to, to make their own families fertile as well, for, of course, children meant, meant more workers and more profit, even more protection for them as well. They learned that the way to convince these gods from their pagan neighbors, uh, the way to convince these gods uh, to make their livestock and themselves more fertile, well, it was to participate in, in sexual acts during their worship of these idols. So they would employ temple prostitutes around their worship sites to serve the worshipers, and so profit and pleasure were major motivations for idol worship in Israel. And brothers and sisters, sadly, not much has changed in the hearts of men. We flee away from God. We run away from him. For what? Pleasure, profit. In our advanced progressive culture today, people are still looking away from the one true God, forsaking their hope of steadfast love and salvation in order to pursue idols of profit and pleasure. We are overwhelmingly looking to other things for meaning, for our satisfaction, even for our identity, and we are not looking to the one who made us. We're not looking to the one who loves us and who has paid the highest price in order to save us. Only the Lord can save us. Only the Lord can bring blessings to us. Everything else will leave us lonely, broken, empty, and ultimately condemned to hell. Jesus is not pointing his finger arrogantly, I'm sorry, Jonah is not pointing his finger arrogantly and putting people like the sailors on his boat down for their worthless attempts 
out seeking salvation from the idols that they were praying to during the storm. Jonah is pointing out how sad and hopeless it is for anyone to turn away from the only hope of salvation and instead rest their hope on worthless things that will do them no good and instead will end up destroying them. That's what he's saying here, verse 8. The Lord says this to his idolatrous people through the prophet Jeremiah. If you look at the prophet Jeremiah, verse, verses 12 and 13 of chapter 2, he says this to them. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. They are turning away from me, from everlasting life, and choosing death and destruction instead. That's what's happening. That's what's going on when they're turning away from the Lord and pursuing idols. The great reformer John Calvin also said this about the sad and, and devastatingly worthless way that so many in our world are basing their lives on. He says, they rob themselves of the chief good. As soon as men depart from God, they depart from life and salvation. They then, who follow such vanities, forsake their own mercy. That is, they reject all happiness. For no aid and no help can be expected from any other quarter than from the only true God. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Well, friends, when, when your life is slipping away, what will strengthen your heart? What will comfort your soul? What or whom will you be looking to and resting your hope and confidence in? Will it be all those things that gave you pleasure in your sin? Will it be that number that's on the line of your bank account? What you're looking forward to doing in your brief years of retirement? I mean, don't forsake your hope of steadfast love from the Lord, of everlasting life from the Lord. Forsake your idols instead. Turn away from those things and rest your hope firmly in the Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, Verses 9 and 10, the Lord rules over salvation. The Lord rules over salvation. We come to the end here of Jonah's prayer, and we see that it was definitely a prayer of thanksgiving for the Lord's merciful salvation for him. Uh, then verse 10 provides us with a, with a short statement of how Jonah was finally delivered. Um, and as one Bible teacher put it, the contrast between the sublime words of the poem of Jonah's prayer and the undignified deliverance of Jonah from the fish could hardly be greater. Could hardly be greater. I'd have to agree. It's, it's definitely striking for us to go from this poetic psalm-like prayer to the rather rough statement that we find in verse 10. So here it is, verse 9 and 10. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. 
Jonah knows better than anyone else at this point that the Lord is sovereign over salvation. Jonah was at his lowest point. He had been humbled to the absolute depths. There was absolutely nothing he could do or contribute to his own salvation. In that time, he was not saved by his own righteousness, for he had none. He had turned away from God and in the process endangered the lives of, of others. He was unable to get himself out of his predicament by, by any wisdom that he may have possessed. He, he certainly did not have the strength to save himself from drowning here. No, as he considers what he just experienced, he comes to the same conclusion as King David does in Psalm 3, verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It was completely the Lord's prerogative to save him, and he graciously chose to do so. And man, is Jonah grateful for that. Uh, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. But what Jonah will also soon learn is that because salvation belongs to the Lord, it is the Lord who decides who to save and not us. Remember how the story began. The Lord uh, uh, came to Jonah, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, and the Lord was sending him, where? Sending him to Nineveh to speak out against the city for their wickedness, to deliver the word of the Lord to the Ninevites. The Lord was also showing Jonah here that he doesn't get to choose who receives salvation and who doesn't. Jonah was trying to prevent the evil Ninevites from receiving God's word. But the Lord was teaching Jonah by sending the storm and the great fish to rescue him at his salvation. Well, the salvation of the, of the Ninevites was not up to him. Rather, salvation belongs to the Lord. The Ninevites were going to receive his word. They were going to be saved, despite how Jonah felt about that. For many of us in here, we have also experienced the Lord's gracious, merciful salvation. And we should recognize that it is a salvation that is all of God. Through God and from God and not from ourselves. For we can do nothing. We can contribute nothing to our salvation except our great need for it. As the great hymn says, all the fitness he requires that is for you to be saved is to feel your need of him. And this he gives you. This he gives you. He, he gives you that sense. He gives you that understanding. He is the one who convicts you of your sins. He is the one who... Uh, who opens your eyes to realize your helplessness, to realize that you are broken before him, that you have no righteousness of your own. He is the one who shines his light in your heart to help you to see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, and he gives you the willingness to come, to repent, and to receive his life-transforming grace. He does it all. 
as 1 Peter 1.3 says, he is the one who causes you to be born again. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So is this something that you have realized? Have you come to know your great need for the Lord's salvation? Do you think that you have it in yourself to earn your way into God's good graces? That you've done enough good things? That you've been a good enough person? Or that you've taken all the proper steps you know, for God to welcome you into his heaven? Well, then hear again what Jonah is saying. He says, salvation belongs to the Lord. It, it doesn't belong to you. You don't decide. It's not in your hands. It's in his hands. And he has declared it is to be received only by faith. Faith alone in Christ alone. We are not to look at ourselves, but only to Christ. When we stand before God in judgment, we cannot point our fingers at ourselves and tell the Lord, look, look at me. I mean, I did this, I did that, look at what I've done, look at what I accomplished for you. I was this kind of person, I was that kind of person. You know, if, if we do this, if that's our way of understanding how the Lord will welcome us into heaven, look, I, I prayed this prayer when I was eight, eight years old. Look, I was baptized when I was this age. I, I did this, I did that. Look at what I accomplished for you. Look at what I have done. I was able to do these things. Well, the Lord's already told us how he'll respond. We already have it in the scriptures of how he'll respond if that's our approach. He'll say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. No, no, no. When we stand before the Lord in judgment, if we are to be welcomed into heaven, we cannot point our fingers at ourselves. For all that we'll be doing is pointing to our own sins, our own failures, our own unbelief, our own unwillingness to do the Lord's will like Jonah. Instead, we must point our fingers at Christ. Pointing them at Christ. Look at what he has done for me. Look at what he accomplished for us. He lived the righteous, sinless life that I couldn't live. He did what I could never have done on my own. He willingly laid down his life for me on the cross. He is the one who overcame death and hell by rising again from the grave. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to thy cross I cling. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Verse 10 here, although it is a bit undignified, yet it illustrates for us again this same point. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Jonah was, in a sense, buried in the tomb of this great fish for three days and three nights. Then the Lord speaks to the fish. He speaks to the fish. He gives the fish a simple command, and the fish obeys, and Jonah is now back on the shore. This is, in a sense, Jonah's resurrection. The Lord speaks, and Jonah is back, and he's alive and well. This reminds us of, of what Jesus did for his friend Lazarus. When after Lazarus had been dead in the grave for four days, it says in, jo in John eleven forty three 43, that Jesus spoke 
into the tomb. He spoke. He said, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out. Jesus also says in in John chapter 5 that an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. God speaks and the dead rise up and live. God's word comes to a certain group of people and they hear his voice and they repent and come to faith. From beginning to end, salvation belongs to the Lord. So do you believe this? Have you come to the end of yourself and cast all your hope for transformation, for life change, for salvation upon the Lord? Is your heart, as we sung, filled with thankfulness to him who bore your pain, who plumbed the depths of your disgrace and gave you life again? Well, if it is, be sure you continue to orient your whole life around the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word this morning, and we pray that you would help us to orient our lives around your word, to put our full faith and trust in the Lord Jesus alone for our salvation for our hope of eternal life, as well as our hope of life transformation in the here and now. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.